turn our attention to the Word, Father. And as we do, may your Holy Spirit poke around and prod us, teach us, open our eyes to truth, help us to have the ability to be honest with ourselves and with your Word and with the world in which we live. Father, I pray particularly today you would guide my words, and I pray also, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take the the matters at hand and the topic at hand and, and teach us and encourage us with a great ability to know how to interface with our culture, that we as believers in the Lord Christ and Bible-believing Christians would be careful not to compromise truth, that we would lovingly and graciously just lay hold to the things that you've laid out for us. And thank you, Father, for the order of your creation. Thank you for the beauty of design with which you've put things together. And thank you, Lord, again, most of all, for the Lord Jesus Christ, his shed blood that brings newness of life. Give us ears to hear. Give us tender hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I guess I was uh, thinking about what are we going to do if the, if the love loan challenge doesn't work and kind of working on a plan. I need your help, okay? Get started this morning. Um, I thought we might uh, do some test marketing uh, ahead of time here this morning so that we could generate some, some revenue if we ever need to. And so we're working on a line of, of toys for our church. And what I need you to do is I need you to tell me uh, how to market it so that we know which demographic to market it to, okay? So we have, uh, we've thought about a line of trucks and a line of, uh, you know, heavy equipment trucks. What are we going to do? Who are we going to market this to? Help me out. Huh? To children. Oh, you're all so politically correct. <laughs> Who's going to buy our trucks? Who do we want to show our Grandmother. grandmas? Okay, good. Cooperative audience this morning. Philip Lowe from Australia is here. Good morning, brother. Welcome. What do you think? Little baby dolls that are soft to the touch with pink outfits. Get one for your little boy. How's that a marketing scheme? Huh? What are we going to do? Boys, girls, you know it even if you don't want to say it. I was thinking about a line of magazines, and I thought that we would... We would go ahead and and use Country Living magazine and see if we could sell subscriptions. Who are we going to market it to? Decorating, antiques, cooking, crafting, and gardens. I'm interested in all those things. 52 pages of decorating ideas. You're losing me. And simple ways to make your home cozy and pretty. It's not high on my list. Who are we going to market that one to, ladies? Ah, it's going to be... How about our... our it's a proven, time-proven outdoor magazine. Let's use this. I'm, I'm sure everybody needs a, a subscription to Outdoor Life. How to Survive in Bear Country. <laughs> Unsolved Mysteries of Hunters Who Vanished. Get this message done. I'm going to read that one myself. And then the ad in the back kind of reminds me of of another program we're going to start. Um, I was thinking, isn't it interesting that that smells even hold meaning to us? I remember when I was in 
12th grade, last hour of the day, Vicksburg High School, red and white, fight, fight. And I was in Corral, and on the risers, there was a little girl. Um, I, her, I couldn't remember her name till just now. Her name was Terry. Terry Cropper. Cropper? Crawford? Anyway, what I do remember about her is that I thought she was very cute. Very cute. And I thought that she smelled so good. And I really enjoyed the whole second half of my senior year when I had concert choir last hour of the day. It was even last hour of the day. She stood right here in front of me. Her chin came right here, and I just loved the smell of her hair. She smelled good. You know, I don't ever remember enjoying smelling a man. Maybe Stu Smith once in a while. He wears some good cologne. But we need to start a product line that would appeal to men, huh, or women. How about this one? Brute. Hey, ladies, you like that one? How about if we start a line for men, you know, uh, white lacy linen for men? How about miracle for ladies and brute for men? Maybe we could sell a little, huh? That could work. You know, I was thinking about for like our, our younger audience, and maybe not so much younger. I remember my 96-year-old aunt always liked to have her toenails and fingernails painted by Janet every time we went to visit her. I was thinking about a, a nail line. How's that? FBC nails. Huh? Peta, peta, what is it? Pedicure. What's your fingers? Manicure. Man, there it is. Man. Man, your cure. There it is. How's that, huh, guys? Travis, come on. Hey. I think we'd do better selling the new line of Gerber multi-tool to our guys, wouldn't we? Let's stick to the ladies with our nail line. Do you agree with me? I'm not saying that there's not some interest at different levels. But you tell me, are men and women the same? Does gender really mean anything? I really think it does. And I think that people who've tried to tell themselves that that we're a gender-neutral people and that we're environmentally shaped, strictly environmentally shaped. And we've kind of gotten past that a little bit because physiologically people have have learned to uh, admit, oh, hey, I forgot our line of mugs. We've got it all this morning. How about our little, uh, how about we could call it roses for men? Tea time for two. Who's going to market? Who's in the market for that? Ladies, right? How about our big porcelain heavy mug with John Deere all over it? I'm not saying a lady wouldn't drink out of it, or I'd drink out of these at home. They have appeal, don't they? They hit us somehow at a level that we don't stop and think about, but that if we're honest, we recognize there's something in us that makes us who we are by design, isn't it? By design. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1 this morning and then to reach on a chair nearby and get a copy of the sermon notes, the message notes. There's some fill-in-the-blanks there. And we're in the beginning. This is the beginning, the first message of, of several messages on a cultural series that we're calling When the Word and the World Collide. 
When the Word of God and the secular world around us that is so broad and so wide open and, and just refuses to acknowledge the design and, and the plan of God, when the two come in conflict, how are we to think? Our goal and our purpose here this morning isn't to grind any axe. It's not to be ridiculous. It'd be easy, really, to overlook some of these subjects, but I couldn't help but just see them come off the page as we have been studying in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 lately. I want to remind you that um, next Sunday we're going to deal with a, a topic that would probably not be age appropriate for younger children and use your discernment. It's been in the news a lot lately with the California State Supreme Court decision in San Francisco and we're going to deal with what the Bible says about that topic. There will be an extended, expanded junior church program next Sunday and you may want to take advantage of that. This morning, what I want us to do is I want us to look at God's Word and I want to see if what we see in God's Word, much like we did in the creation message, fits the grid of what our gut tells us and what our world has borne witness of. I think you'll find that God's Word really does make sense and that it fits in with the very things that we've been uh, te- bear testimony of within our own spirit. That is, that a lady likes a flowery cup and a man likes a big, heavy John Deere cup. Doesn't mean a man can't drink out of this or a woman can't drink out of a John Deere cup. But there is something about us that makes us masculine and there's something about a lady that is feminine. There's something about a man that when he smells the perfume and hair of femininity that it appeals great, greatly to him. And there's something about a woman that appeals to, that has an appeal to masculinity. I want to answer the question, though, before we go any further, why this message? Why would you pick gender roles to talk about? The overriding reason is that the Word of God addresses it, and I, I want to be very careful in my handling of the Word of God, but I want you to understand that this topic has ramifications that are just incredible that you may not even be aware of in both the influence and impact that it's had upon the home, both inside Christianity and outside of Christianity, and the great impact that it's having on the church at large around the world, particularly the evangelical church in America today. If you have your notes, you may want to fill it out. We're going to do this part of the message first, then we're going to read from Genesis and and look in the Word and see what the Word says. Why this message? First of all, the first reason is, is the radical cultural shift that we see going on around us. The radical cultural shift. Now, this hasn't happened overnight, and it's been uh, probably, uh, particularly for the last hundred years, but post-World War II, we've kicked it into high gear. And if you're watching the culture, you're a culture uh, observer of the culture, and we live in it, we can't help but see it. We see so many things that are changing I didn't even know it was on TV, but Friday evening we were just uh, clicking on the TV. It was kind of late and caught just the last few minutes of a Barbara Walters special presented by ABC News, News entitled Born with the Wrong Body. It was about little children who are perfectly healthy and born boys and girls. And as young as age two and three, they are asking their mommies if they can switch over and how that this is very healthy and these parents are helping these little children switch over. And we live in a culture of where there is now a demographic of transgender children. 
I remember clear back in the 80s when I was a youth pastor, cover of Time magazine dealt with the next bullet point under radical cultural shift. And the whole idea that teenagers were going back and forth now and that this was a whole new world for young people. That boys just don't go with boys and boys don't just, or boys don't just go with girls, but they go with boys and girls back and forth, girls with girls, boys. We'll deal a little more thoroughly with that next week. I think it's absolutely mind-boggling that we live in a, as great of a country as we do, that has accomplished as many great things as we have. And I know we have lots of pimples and scars, and we're not a perfect country. But it literally embarrasses me that our military leaders have caved to this issue and that we send women in combat now in America. That doesn't fit my grid. Now, you can consider me a chauvinist and, hey, here's your machine gun, babe, and a grenade. Go get it, honey. But at my house, when there's a squeaky noise downstairs in the middle of the night, it ain't the wife that goes down there after it. I don't think she really wants to. And it's not all so much that I want to, but I do when my family's home. Don't get in my way. Do you feel that way, guys? But we've shifted away from that. All this equality. Is that biblical? Is that how a Christian should think? Secondly, and this is in the news and we'll not camp on this, but there's been a tremendous denominational schism in the last 50 years. Now, this actually started probably close to 100 years ago, uh, around the time of World War I, when a number of mainline denominations, I'll use one by name as an example, uh, the Presbyterian denomination. Many fine Presbyterian churches with many fine Bible-preaching men. But it actually began with the issue of evolution, was one of the first issues. And in fact, I think right now is a good time to stop and flip over your notes and let's look in our text box on our definitions because I'm going to use some words now and I want to make sure you understand what we're talking about because this is what happened in the Presbyterian denomination. I'll go back to that in just a minute. But when we talk about theological liberalism, I'm going to use the word from now on, I'll probably just say liberals or liberalism. I'll sometimes say theological liberal. I'm not talking about the political spectrum. It is interesting that almost all theological liberals are political liberals, almost all the time. Okay? But that's a different subject, and that's not what we're here for. We're talking about theological liberalism, and when I talk about theological liberalism, what I'm talking about is a system of thinking among church leaders that denies the complete truthfulness of the Bible and the Word of God, thereby denying the absolute authority of the Bible in our lives. This is the doctrine of inerrancy. Inerrancy means that we have a reliable text. It is truthful. Now, if you want to get technical, we would say that this is a translation. It is 100% reliable in the, in the autograph. I was going to say original autographs. That's a... That's a Repeating myself, the autographs are the original text, which like the actual parchment that the Apostle Paul wrote on or Moses when he wrote Genesis, the actual paper that he wrote on. That's, we don't have any of those. We only have copies of copies of copies. But rest assured, we have had some excellent scholastic work and we have great confidence in many good translations of the Bible. 
And so we can say with confidence, this, and we do all the time, this is the truth. This is God's word. You can count on it. It's true. Theological liberalism is when you begin to take away the confidence of the authority of the word of God based on the fact that it's not reliable. It's probably not true in in many of its portions. There's another thing, while we're in the text box, we don't have to go back to it, and we'll be talking about, in a minute, feminism in the evangelical church. You know a lot about, you know, Gloria Steinem and people like that through the years, and feminism uh, out in the secular world, but feminism has impacted the church at a high level. Is this a big deal? Does it matter? Evangelical feminism, you need to know, is really, really common and really widespread and very popular high image churches nowadays. And when we say evangelical feminism, this is what we say. It is a movement among largely Bible-believing, they're not theologically liberal. They believe the Bible is the word of God, but they have shifted in their thinking on what was traditionally accepted as authoritative from God as far as design and order. They have shifted and they now believe and claim that there are no unique roles in the home and marriage or in the church between men and women, that it's totally open, okay? That women can decide who's in charge, men and women can get together, get married, and you can decide if you want to, who wants, who's going to be in charge, who's not going to be in charge. That there are not God-ordained, God-given roles that spring right out of the design of creation and have been taught in Scripture largely by the Apostle Paul in explaining how marriage and the church should function. The word for that, evangelical feminism, is egalitarianism. Egalitarianism. If you do any reading or if you were to go on the Internet and research it, there are big websites and everything. The counter to that and the position that Fellowship Bible Church would hold is called complementarianism. Complementarianism, and that is, we would say that by design, men and women are different, that gender roles do matter, and that, in fact, God designed us with God-given roles in the home and in the church, and that the man is given largely the responsibility of leadership, and that the wife is to come in as his helper in a complementary way and assist him in his role, and that two come together, and that our function, our our design influences our function And we maximize our potential before the Lord to be who we should be when we understand who we are and we live out God's will according to God's word. Back now to the other side. Not only do we have a radical cultural shift going on, and not only have we had significant denominational schism, big division, and I was starting to talk about that. In the last half of the 20th century, starting in the 1940s and 50s, after World War II, the big issue was the ordination of women. Now back to the Presbyterians, okay? It used to be, you're kind of like First Presbyterian Church, whatever. It's a good church. Now you don't know what you're dealing with if you just hear First Presbyterian. Because you don't know if it's Presbyterian USA Orthodox Pres, Presbyterian Church of America, and they divided over some of these issues. They began to move towards theological liberalism, and some of the people said no, and as a result, it created huge schism in the denominations. And this has happened over and over again, and it's divided up the denominations. It's partly the reason why there's an independent church movement. 
Because they just threw the whole denominational thing out the window and said, we're just going to be an independent church. And so you have this issue that was the ordination of women, this idea of, of an evangelical feminism that crept into the church years ago. Guess what has happened very rapidly now at the beginning of the 21st century? The issue is no longer the ordination of women. You'll be laughed off the platform if you said a woman shouldn't be ordained in most of, most of those churches. But now what they're fighting over at their annual conventions, and you probably see it in the news, is whether or not homosexuality is, is a God-given trait and whether or not homosexuals should be ordained, if there should be a homosexual clergy. Number three, then, there's a predictable sequence of theological liberals. You say, well, why are you preaching this message? Because there is a predictable sequence of theological liberalism that creeps into churches. You say, can you prove that? Yes, I can. And men a lot smarter than I have studied it and written about it and lots of books and articles and discussions take place over this. And this is a very current issue in the American church at large. There are men at the seminary level who are losing their jobs because they are taking a stand against the ordination of women, for example, and they're no longer allowed to teach at a seminary or they're not getting hired where they might have gotten hired at other places. It's very widespread. A guy named Wayne Grudem, you see the number one and it's at the bottom of the page there, Evangelical Feminism, A New Path to Liberalism, question mark, by Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem is a good thinker uh, out of Phoenix. He's a contemporary. He's currently involved in ministry and writing books. In this little book that, he, that I've referenced there, he lists this bullet-pointed list on the predictable sequence of theological liberalism. It is this. First of all, there will be an abandonment of biblical inerrancy. We already referenced that. There will be a movement into theological liberalism, an abandonment of biblical inerrancy. That is, we begin to say, okay, the word of God is not totally true. There are parts of it that we're going to take some of the pages and we're going to take our big magic marker and wipe it out because you can't count on that. Certain verses we're going to get our scissors or our razor blade and cut out of the Bible. They will then endorse the ordination of women. Okay? And this isn't a bulletproof list, but this, in denomination after denomination after denomination, they have tracked this line of thought. There then is an endorsement of the ordination of women. There is an abandonment of biblical teaching, of the biblical teaching of male headship and marriage. Okay, they all kind of come in progression, and one leads to the other. They then will exclude the clergy opposed to the ordination of women. You're not welcome here at this circle anymore. Go. And that's when schism came about and different parts of a denomination began, then, believe it or not, following that is the approval, now notice the wording here, it's important, the approving of homosexual conduct as morally valid in some cases becomes a very kind of a new openness to this whole lifestyle and that a question then, God's word doesn't really condemn it. And you can actually see that if you say God's word really doesn't teach a male headship, and you cut those verses out of your Bible, then you can go cut other verses out of your Bible, and actually there's a cultural shift inside the church that takes place, and it's very serious. And it can happen, and it happens every day. Finally, there becomes an approval of the lifestyle, even an ordination of it, and um, they go from approving to actually recognizing it and letting it be at leadership at the highest levels. And these are some of the some of the arguments that are splitting denominations today, currently, as they meet this summer. Number four, there's a trend, the trend of evangelical feminism itself in the church at large. 
the trend is this. It's this doubting and denying the truthfulness of, guess what? Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis 1 through 3. It becomes a great literary passage of Scripture with poetic value, imagery value, but it is no longer accepted as a literal account of creation, nor is it held to as a by-design-of-God passage of Scripture. Many people basically just ignore it, act like it's not in the Bible. There is a questioning then of the accuracy and authority of Paul's epistle, and this is widespread in, in many popular large evangelical circles right now. And there's a whole new rewriting of Paul. And you know what they're saying? They're saying literally that for 2,000 years the church has misunderstood Paul's writing and now we've got it. And Paul didn't mean what he said. In fact, Paul was just expressing some male chauvinistic pharisaical leanings that he had and it was not teaching for the whole church. And that's what they're saying. They're writing books, articles and discussing at theological roundtables. They then deny the God-ordained order of male headship. These are not progressive. These are, this is a list of examples of what's going on right now in evangelical circles. Denying the God-ordained order for male headship in the home, very common. Denying the biblical teaching of male leadership in the church. And then you've probably even seen some advertisements um, uh, in my Christianity Today magazine. They advertise for the gender-neutral Bible. And what they've done is taken the pronouns that so much in the, in the translation of our Bibles is he, you know, it uses the male phrases, particularly for pronouns, and they change it and make it gender neutral to they. Finally, there is a growing movement that is a little bit more radical and it's out on the fringe, but it is still now becoming accepted. And all of these are becoming widely accepted and highly tolerated inside of evangelical churches. It no longer divides. It's a big umbrella. Everybody's welcome. And this is the, the promoting of the feminization of God movement. And this is a little bit how it works. Wayne Grudem in his book wrote this. He said, the bookstore carries a book by Paul R. Smith called... The title of the book is, Is It Okay to Call God Mother? Considering the Feminine Face of God. That's the name of the book. In this book, Smith says, In one sense, I wrote this book so that our congregation could have a fuller explanation of why I believe it is important to call God Mother as well as Father in public worship. Smith includes a cartoon in his book of Moses arriving in heaven, Ten Commandments under his arm, saying to God, Gee, I didn't expect you'd be a soprano. Later in the book, Smith asks the question, Will the next thing be to say that Jesus should have been a woman? And though he affirms that Jesus did come as a man, he says, quote, Something is wrong when we cannot conceive of the Messiah coming from a different cultural setting or being a different race or gender. He says he personally owns a sculpture of, quote, a female Jesus hanging on the cross, close quote. And he admits that some people, quote, have, fi- have violent reactions, close quote, to it. Smith concludes this section by saying, quote, I personally try to avoid using masculine pronouns for the risen, transcended Christ, except when I'm speaking of him during his time here on earth before his ascension, and so forth and on. You get the idea. Now... Probably not too many of us have bought that book, but my point is, in the purpose in preaching this message, is that 
It's out there and it's growing in popularity more than you would realize. Radical cultural shift, current denominational schisms, a predictable sequence in theological liberalism, the trend of evangelical feminism, all add up to the reason that we need to look in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and then the writings of Paul and say, okay, what did God intend in the order of creation and with the creation of gender by design, design of genders? Well, let's dig in. We're going to just study the word now briefly. And so open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 and let's take a look. My concern is is that we would understand what God's word says and that we not allow, say, 50 years from now or even less time than that, that Fellowship Bible Church would not move towards the trend of theological liberalism. And evangelical feminism is a great step in the right direction towards, towards theological liberalism. We want to simply ask the question out of Genesis 1, well, what did, what, what did God do? What did God say? And so forth. And let's just see what we have. Let's begin with our reading and begin in chapter 1, verse 24. We have a few minutes left to study the Word of God. It took me a little longer to develop that than I thought, but let's go with Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds livestock, creatures that move among the, along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let us make man, us, probably a reference, no doubt, to the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all engaged in creation. We know from testimony of scripture let us make man in our image now notice the language notice the words in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the livestock over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground so God verse 27 created man in his own image in the image of God created he him male and female he created them God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so forth. Further instruction. Let's jump down to chapter 2, verse 4 and pick it up there. And this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Okay, so he's going to give a recap. He's going to give a synopsis of of what happened in parts. And mainly this is day 6 in chapter 2. And when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared, verse 5, on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, the Lord God planted a garden. We'll not look at it in detail right now. We'll come back to this. But the idea, he planted a garden the east of Eden. He put the man that he had formed there, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees, pleasing to the eye, good for food. The middle of the garden, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil as well, identifying its boundaries with four rivers and, and different minerals in the ground. Then down to verse 15, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Notice the language. 
I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and all of the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, notice, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said... Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Interesting, and when Adam sees Eve, and he calls her woman, and in the Hebrew, do you know what the word for man is that's used here is ish, ish. And when he saw Eve, you know what he called her? Isha, put the feminine ending on it. This is a statement of equality, isn't it? Listen, in no way in this message am I saying that men and women are not equal in worth, in value. In no way am I saying that men are smarter than women. As a rule, men are stronger than women. That goes part of the design and the way God made us. Most women like it that way. Women can do math, and men can do math, and women can do English, and men can do English. Lots of times, just by design, I believe, we have a propensity to fall into certain areas with strength. It's part of the way God designed us, part of what our natural, why one of us will read outdoor life and care about survival, and why some of us like to read country living and make the nest a little more cozy. It's kind of related and the way we think, and it has to do with maleness, and it has to do with femaleness, but it doesn't have to do with inequality. And yet by design, even in the creative order, and you're going to see in a minute, as Paul taught about the home and as Paul taught about the church, he says that the very way God created us tells us that the man is the leader and the woman is to come in alongside the man and to be in support of him as a suitable helper. Listen, if words mean anything... And if the Apostle Paul was credible, and he was, he built a whole theology, basically, of the church and of the home on the creative order and God's design. What did God say? Or what did God do? I want you to notice that in verse 26, God called the human race man. Did you see that? I think that's interesting. Then God said, let us make man In our image. And you know, he's not just talking about males. He could have used a word that was for male there. Okay? The idea is, he calls the human race humanity. He didn't call it humanity. Okay? It was the man. He calls, and when he made up humanity, it wasn't just a man. In fact, we see that where God also, what he said later, I didn't put a blank for you to fill it in, but isn't it interesting that for the whole five days of creation, everything God creates, and we talked about this over and over, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. He creates the man, the man is alone, and God says, wait a minute, it's bad. It's the only time he looked at his creation and he said, it's not good, it is not good. Every man in here knows that too. Every woman in here knows it too. And once again, you know what I would say? 
the very way we think in the core of our being fits the model of Scripture. We don't have to force Scripture into the core being of our thinking. It's just like when I said, if you were here for our creation messages, we got in our helicopter with our microscope and our binoculars and our telescope, and we got in that helicopter, and we went all around the world, and we tried to find something that did not fit Genesis 1, and all we found was support for Genesis 1. The natural world, the natural order, the way things are, it rings true. It's one reason why the secular world wears such a heavy set of dark glasses blocking out God because they refuse to see the obvious and they have to create a world outside of God so that man can be in charge. But I'm not saying that men and women are not equal. I'm saying that we have different roles spiritually, emotionally, in our value. We're equal in God's eyes. Clearly. And Jesus died for women just as much as he died for men. But he gave us jobs to do and he put us in positions. Let's look further. He called the human race man. The second bullet point under number one, he created man, male, and female. Isn't that interesting? When he created man or mankind, he created it male and female. For man to be created fully in the image of God, it takes a male and a female. Isn't that interesting? I also would notice that when God designed the woman and he comes up to the man, what God said, let's do number two and look at verse 18. What God said was in verse 18, the Lord God said it was not good, I referenced this already, for the man to be alone. And then look what he says. I will make a, what's the next word? A helper. He didn't say I will make a leader suitable for him. He didn't say, now that I've got the home handyman made, I'm going, to bring the, I'm going to bring in the queen of creation so that the home handyman can take care of her. He said he created the man and he created the woman to help the man. You're going to see that Paul really emphasizes that. It reminds me of the old red green saying that uh, he said, uh, uh, if you're, to the men, he said, um, if your wife don't find you handsome, she ought to at least find you handy. Well, we ought to be handy men, right? It's good to be a handyman around the house. Some of us are, some of us aren't. But God designed a handy woman for the man. He didn't design a handyman for the woman. I will make a helper, he says, and then no, look what it says in verse 20, no suitable helper was found. Look at this, this regards next week's topic as well in a, in a, in a dramatic way. You recall, and we've already pointed out in messages past, that before God made the woman, he had Adam do something. What was it? Name the animals. He was pointing out the obvious to the man. You've got to do that, you know? That was a joke. But when God made the woman, notice for companionship, for partnership, that he made an equal partner, someone who fits that word suitability. Don't a man and a woman come together just perfectly? That's why it is an abuse. It is a, it is a, it is a, a grotesque abuse of God's design when a man and a man come together and a woman and a woman come together the way God designed for a man and a woman to come together. It's a violation of the plan. It's a violation of the design. And God said, don't do that. 
I have put a quote in there from uh, uh, Ray. I didn't say that in there. It, that's a Ray Ortman quote. And you can read the small print there. The paradox, he says, uh, let me just read it quickly. In the conspicuous phrase, a helper suitable for him, we encounter the paradox of manhood and womanhood. On the one hand, the woman alone, out of all the creatures, was suitable for him. She alone was Adam's equal. A man may enjoy a form of companionship with a dog, but only on the dog's level. With a wife, a man finds companionship on his own level, for she is his equal. On the other side of the paradox, the woman is man's helper. The man was not created to help the woman, but the reverse. Doesn't this striking fact suggest that manhood and womanhood are distinct and non-reversible? He goes on to say, so was Eve Adam's equal? The answer is yes and no. She was his spiritual equal and, unlike the animals, suitable for him. But she was not his equal in that she was his helper. Notice what Adam said. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. What is Adam saying? You are what I am. Right? He had just named all the animals and he knew that what he was looking at now was him. Further evidence for the equality of substance, the equality of of personhood, the equality of relationship. The idea is that we go together and you are my, you're my bone and you're my flesh. We fit together. And isn't it interesting that what God did in the very order of creation, he took the animals and made them out of the the dust of the ground. He made man out of the dust of the ground. Of man, he says, he breathed in him the breath of life. You might say that uh, breathing in life about animals, I forget now. But then what he says is he took Adam, put him to sleep, you know the story well, and took from his side. He didn't make Eve out of the ground. He made Adam out of, Eve out of the same substance, out of Adam's own flesh. Isn't that interesting? I think it's symbolic. Why else would God do it? Did God need material? Did God need tools and material to get started? No, he's teaching in the very way he designs. Adam affirms it. Well, what did Paul teach about this? Let's go to the New Testament. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll go just a few more minutes and I think you'll be able to get a handle on this and understand my points. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and I want you to see something here. And this is part of the controversy of this whole topic. And that is whether or not we're going to accept what Paul taught about this subject. And you need to understand, as I tried to build a case last week to show you, that part of the reason that Genesis 1 is so controversial is that Paul quoted it. Paul uses the order and design of creation to build his theology for a male headship in the home and a male leadership in the church. You know about the home a good bit. And we're going to talk about marriage at another subject. So we're going to um, kind of let that one go. But the f- number four is what Paul taught, parentheses, for the home. And you'll notice that there's a couple of key passages. We're going to read one of them in a minute here that actually goes into the teaching on the church. So it'll be helpful for number five. So just stay with 1 Corinthians 11. The two classic passages in Ephesians and Colossians, but Ephesians 5 is the most familiar passage to us and that's the the long passage verse 22 to 33 where he starts out saying to the woman you're to be submissive to your husband and he says to the men you are to love your wife as christ loved the church listen i'm in no way promoting a male dominance here you know woman 
When you meditate and think about how Christ loved the church, there is no question that the man has a harder job than a woman submitting to a man. As difficult as it might be for some of you women to submit to a man, be a man sometime full of pride and arrogance and self-will and self-strength and have to love somebody the way Christ loved the church. It's only possible as we become a new creation in Christ and as the Spirit of God is in us so that we can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But I wonder how many wives out there, well, if you don't have it or even if you do have it, you, you long to have that kind of man, don't you? To love you, to protect you, to lay down his life for you. Boy, that brings you alive, doesn't it? I find in my pastoral counseling, I find that women, and I think, and you could say, well, you only counsel Christians and they're weird. They're weird, all right, but I think they're pretty good people. I find that women really do not want to be the head of their home. We're going to talk later about the fall and a drive in a woman to want to be in charge at home that's from the flesh and from the fall. But I find in my pastoral counseling and my marriage counseling, I find that women long for a husband who will love them like Christ loved the church. They long for this man to come in and bring an order to their home in which they can fit in and maximize their gifts and potential to make the home what it should be. And often marriage problems come when, when the man is passive and the woman sees things and she doesn't know what to do and she wants it to be different. And then the tension starts. And we'll talk more about that at another day. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 11 and let's look at number 5 about what Paul taught for the church. I included 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 under what taught, Paul taught for the home because I wanted to start with that verse because it's God, it's the clearest statement of God's design of a hierarchy of command for the home and the church. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Did you get that? If words mean anything, it means that Christ was submissive to God, the man is to be submissive to Christ, and the woman is to be submissive to the man. It's a chain of command that God has. This passage is teaching about an issue in the Corinthian church that had gotten out of order. Let's go ahead and read it since we're here. And look what he says. And every woman, verse 5, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have cut her hair off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought to not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. There it is again. For man did not come from woman, Paul says, but woman from the man. He's going back to Genesis. Neither was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Listen, if words mean anything, how do you get around that? Oh, here's how you get around it. Paul didn't mean it. Or this was added 200 years after Paul died. For this reason, because of the angels, let's forget it, that part of it. Stop there. What's going on? Here's what's going on. Why did Paul start that section saying the head of Christ is God, the head of man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man? He goes right into this weird passage about her head covered and her head shaved, and that the woman is made for the glory of the man. He's solving a church problem. And you say, well, how come you're big on headship? of the male headship in the home and in the church, but you don't have all the women in your church with their head covered. See, you're inconsistent in your hermeneutic. No, I'm not. 
I am interpreting it culturally. We always consider the culture of a passage. And you'll discern if you study the passage and you study the culture of the day, here's exactly what was going on. And the reason he started with the headship verse and then goes on and tells the women, cover your head up, is because women were coming to church and uncovering their head. It's a little bit shocking, kind of like in an Eastern culture today where they wore what's it called, a burqa. And if they uncover it, their brothers will kill them. Right? Because it means something. If they uncover themselves, their, their, their head in front of some other man, the women were coming in, and in their understanding of a freedom that we have in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither man nor woman. I don't have to cover my head. She comes in and she uncovers her head, and it's messing with all the men. The men can't worship because they got a woman with her head uncovered because she's showing herself. He says, if you uncover your head, you might as well shave your head. What's he mean by that? That's what the prostitutes did down on the street, and that's how you knew who they were. They had the shaved head. Well, what's his point? His point is, be the woman that God made you to be. You were made for the glory of the man. The man wasn't made for your glory. Cover up your head and worship. The head of Christ is God. The head of the man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man. And the women, when they're coming in, and Paul, in solving the church problem, actually references creation. And the order of creation. So cover your head. What's he doing? He's saying, fit into the order and design which God. You're not equal to men in the worship setting in that sense. Don't try to usurp an equal authority with a man by uncovering your head and saying, I'm equal with the men. That's what they were doing. He's saying, no, cover up your head. In other words, get back where you are designed by God to be. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and with this we'll close. You see, Paul is teaching them about order in the church, and he was teaching them about God's design from creation. They were trying to be equal to the men in the church, and Paul was saying, no, even creation shows us you're not in that setting. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 2, probably the most controversial passage, and this is what it says. Begin with verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now notice his evidence. It's not the fall. It wasn't her sinfulness. He used that as kind of a backup evidence. His primary argument for the woman to be silent was that the man was the head and he was first formed and then Eve. Adam was first created and then Eve. He uses the very pattern of creation to instill in them that God has a design for the church. It's why elders are to be the husbands of one wife. It's why elders are to be the head of their home with a home that's in order. It's even reflected in a way in the discipleship of Christ, an all-male discipleship. In the home, he wants the man to be the head, and he doesn't say, now go to church and reverse that order and have the women be in charge of the men. He wants the men to be the leaders, both in home and in the church. Let's bring this thing in for a landing. As an individual, listen. As an individual, your gender is not a mistake. Okay? Your gender is not a mistake. We'll talk a little more about this next week, but do not let our culture confuse you. How pitiful for these mommies and daddies to have a two- and three-year-old child that they're allowing to dress like little girls and they're getting permission from their principals to let them use the girls' bathroom and so forth. And they're, they're fully healthy males and so forth. 
God doesn't make, didn't make a mistake. And I know there's all kinds of problems and things that can come up. But as a, number two, as a partner in a marriage relationship, as a partner, God's design in gender distinction and role is not a mistake. Stop fighting God's plan for your life. Stop being dissatisfied with who you are. If you're a woman, revel in the grace of our Lord Jesus and His beautiful design for who you are and what you're to be in the home and in the church. If you're a man, be the grace, Christ-centered, grace-filled man that you're to be, fulfilling your role. As a church, listen to us, as a church, let me sound the warning that as unpopular teachings of Scripture are conceded to the world, the church will mirror the values and lifestyle of this secular world. We must not do that. I hope I haven't come across in an obnoxious way. I have only tried to present what I believe seriously that Paul used as evidence from Genesis that this matters. And I can document that we see churches on the downgrade who don't hold to it. God forbid that we do that at Fellowship Bible Church. As a clergy, speaking to myself, I remind myself that this, there is a classic path towards liberalism. And this topic is strongly related to it. What's wrong with just taking God at his word? What's wrong with that? It makes sense, doesn't it? And it really does work. Let's bow in prayer, please. Before I pray, maybe you could just look inside your heart. and I, I don't know what your attitude might be. You might really resent some of these teachings I presented today. I hope not. If so, I would challenge you to ask yourself why and whether or not you're really living fulfilled, being what God wants you to be, or if you're fighting it all the time. Is it disrupting your home? Churches have been disrupted over it. Let's just humbly be what God wants us to be. Ask him to give you the strength to be what he designed you to be, whether you're male or female. There is a difference. God expects you to live out that difference. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us in so many ways. Thank you for the clarity of your word. And, and Father, help us to lovingly but firmly hold to walking in obedience to your word and and thank you for the clarity of the creation pattern, what it teaches us, and the clarity, really, of Paul's writings as well. Help us to learn, help us to grow, help us to think. Help us to courageously stand for the word, no matter the cost. Help us, Lord, to be salt and light this week and point people to Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.